Between 1940 and 1950, the city of Texarkana, Texas population grew from just over 17,000 to well over 24,000. The sharp increase of citizens during World War II was in part due to the sprawling Red River Army Depot opened in 1941 to help accommodate the storage of ammunition as well as general supplies, but would go on to include tank repair. When I say that there was a sharp increase of citizens, this growth brought with it some rough people. The railroad ran through Texarkana and thus brought many transients into the area. Soldiers with war stories and nothing better to do made up a good amount of the population there as well. And of course, soldiers drinking with their war stories. The crime rate was skyrocketing during the war and it didn't really slow down after. In spring of 1946, a different kind of panic washed through the town as not one or two, but four couples were brutally attacked in the middle of the night by a man wearing a burlap sack with slits cut in over the eyes. No one knew who this phantom killer was, a term that was quickly coined by the press, and 76 years later, the crime remains unsolved. The events that unfolded in 1946 were so shocking and disturbing that they inspired the 1976 thriller, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The true story, though, also, you know what? I really miss titles that rhyme like that, like cheesy, hokey movie titles. Not the point, though. The true story was that the town was crippled with fear and horror as five people's lives were taken and three would never be the same again. I'm Katherine Galvin, psychic medium and true crime addict, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of this week's horrifyingly true, true crime story, I just wanted to take a moment and thank all of you who are still here and listening despite the unpredictable schedule since May of this year. People can forget that those of us on the other side of the microphone or the screen or whatever are people with things that can come up and go not so much according to plan. And if you've been looking to book a reading with me, those will be available again starting in September when my kiddos go back to school. This summer has been absolute chaos. And as much as I am ready to dive back into connecting with all of you on a more personal level, for now, it's just teaching of classes and Being here on this podcast. So, the calendar is absolutely open now. It is booking into September, and I so look forward to connecting with all of you again soon. And I won't make you wait any longer for this much overdue and hopefully equally anticipated episode of Murder and Mediumship. So, imagine you're out on a Friday night and it's late, maybe even the super early hours of Saturday morning. And you and your date have just dropped off another couple who you had gone on a double date with. You've driven outside of town onto a rural road where no one really goes unless they're looking to be out on a rural road alone, a lover's lane of sorts. And who knows how far you're planning on going that night in the stopped car, but you're young and you're finally alone. Jimmy Hollis and his date, Mary Jane Larry, We're parked out on Richmond Road, just north of Texarkana, enjoying the cover of darkness when a man with what they later described as having possibly a pillowcase over his head approached them, blinding them with a flashlight. He had cut small holes in the cover for eyes and looked like something out of a horror movie. 
He forced them out of the car and began to beat Hollis with the butt of the handgun that he was carrying. And as the phantom killer beat him, he further humiliated and incapacitated Hollis by forcing him to remove his pants. Hollis was left unconscious and barely clinging to life. As for Larry, for whatever reason, the assailant told her to run, as if it were some sick game for him. And she did. She ran. And when she did, he began to chase her, caught up to her, and demanded to know why she was running from him, then proceeded to sexually assault her with the gun. By sheer chance and good fortune, if you can even call it that in a case like this, the lights of a vehicle rolled by, throwing their attacker from his focus, and Larry ran for her life, practically blinded with blood, but made it, beaten and in heels nonetheless, to the last house on Blanton Street. Both Larry and Hollis were admitted to the hospital for their injuries, and Hollis was in and out of consciousness for days and stayed in the hospital under medical care for nearly two weeks before being discharged. Not long after the attacks, they each went their separate ways, leaving the city where their lives were forever changed. Hollis and Larry were both recently divorced at the time of the attacks, and so law enforcement, Sheriff Presley, they kind of looked first to Larry's ex-husband, but when he had an alibi, they were rather stumped. It just didn't make any sense as to why someone would do this, and to confuse matters even more, each victim gave different descriptions of the killer. So Hollis described him as a white man in his late 20s, but didn't recall a mask being worn, whereas Larry described their attacker as a black man wearing a facial covering. For this reason, police weren't sure who they were looking for and may have even taken the case a little less seriously. They believed that maybe the couple was trying to cover something up or maybe they did know their attacker and were embarrassed to reveal their identity. Regardless, though, while this was the most brutal of the attacks, both victims were fortunate enough to survive and go on to marry and have families of their own. Law enforcement chalked it up to a jealous lover or just another one of the typical crimes of Texarkana. Again, it was kind of a rough town. Just about one month later, on Thursday, March 24th, a vehicle was found on another country road in the same county with the bodies of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore inside. Both had been shot in the head with a 32 revolver and it appeared that both bodies had been placed back in the vehicle as there was significant bloodshed on the outside of the vehicle. I found it interesting that, again, the male was significantly older than the female. Richard was 27 years old and Pollyann only 17, a recent high school graduate who had just moved to Texarkana for work. From what is known, it appears that she was shot outside of the car and placed on a blanket or shot while on the blanket and then placed back inside of the car. It's believed that she was also more than likely sexually assaulted on that blanket, but crime scene analysis in the 1940s left a lot to be desired, so it can't be determined 100% for sure. This time, it seemed that they were both robbed, and like I said, Pollyann was believed to have been sexually assaulted, though it couldn't be proved. It wasn't the original intent of the crime, more so was a crime of opportunity, and obviously in the 1940s, crime-solving technology was nothing like it is today, but even the fingerprint evidence that they could have collected was destroyed by poorly handled evidence. The city was beginning to experience a bit more panic, and one incident where both people survived was one thing, but another very similar incident with two dead, merely a few weeks after the first, now it felt like there was reason to panic. 
And that panic grew when late at night on April 13th, the phantom killer of Texarkana struck again. This time, both victims were high school age. Paul Martin was only 16 years old and saxophonist Betty Jo Booker was age 15. Paul Martin's family had moved to the Arkansas side of Texarkana not too long ago. And it's actually interesting, and I believe I failed to mention this in the beginning, but Texarkana, there was Texarkana, Arkansas, and there was Texarkana, Texas. So they bordered each other. It was like a split city, basically. So half of it was in Arkansas, half of it was in Texas, and they obviously had different zip codes. They were different states, but the city was basically one big city kind of split. I don't really know how else to explain it. Um, I think I pretty much nailed it, though. So anyway, Paul had driven back to the Texas side to visit with old friends, and Betty Jo was playing saxophone in a band with the VFW that evening, and around 1 a.m., Paul picked her up to take her home. The way I've come to understand it is that typically when Betty Jo planned to go out after a show to eat or hang out with a band or what have you, she would drop her saxophone off at home so she wouldn't have to worry about lugging it around. This particular night, though, she didn't drop it off. Paul wasn't who was originally sent to pick her up. Another male friend had planned on doing so, but when he had to cancel on her, Paul offered to pick her up after the show. Now, some of the band members were a little wary of her leaving with Paul because they didn't really know him. They didn't know Paul because he had moved again to Arkansas, so they weren't familiar with him. And it was kind of questionable at first, like, had she gone off somewhere with someone? But once they came to understand that the two had actually known each other since, I believe it was like kindergarten or something like that, um, it, it was very clear that Paul had nothing to do with it, especially after he had been found as well. So the two of them ended up by Spring Lake Park. And when Betty Jo wasn't home the next morning, it was Palm Sunday, her parents went into a panic. They alerted law enforcement and formed a search party almost immediately. And unlike Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jane, Betty Jo and Paul were discovered outside of their cars about a mile and a half apart from each other and some distance away from the car as well. It was a family that had the unfortunate circumstance of stumbling upon the scene around 6 a.m., taking a shortcut through the park. Martin had been shot once in the shoulder while in the car and then again in the back of the head. Officers surmised that he was likely getting out of the vehicle, perhaps to defend himself and Betty against their attacker. Betty Joe's body was stretched out across the road, fully clothed and shot four times. She wasn't found until closer to noon that day. According to the coroner, and when I say across the road, I mean like across the street. I'm so sorry, not like across the road. According to the coroner, the first two shots hadn't killed her. So she was shot again two more times and those two shots did kill her. And I won't go into too many details here because that's really all we need to understand. The FBI examined her body, which showed traces of semen while Martins did not, leading the FBI to believe that she had indeed been sexually assaulted and no sexual intercourse had occurred between Booker and Martin. Oddly, there was a leaf found between her dress and her coat, which investigators determined could in fact indicate that her coat had been removed during the assault. So following this murder, police officers began patrolling the various lovers' lanes in the area. More and more citizens purchased guns for themselves, and many even went to incredible lengths to booby-trap their homes. One couple had nailed a blanket over their front door next to a table set unevenly on top of an ashtray so that when the door opened, it would spill the loose nails that were sitting on it 
onto tin trays and pots set below in order to alert the couple sleeping upstairs if someone came in the front door with their rifle loaded next to their bed. And I mean, there's a photo of this in in a newspaper that I will link in the show notes, but some of these things that people were coming up with to be alerted to someone coming into their home, if it was through the front door, they're crazy. I mean, it's really cool to see, especially when obviously alarm systems weren't really a thing, but it's pretty impressive. Also though, I mean, they were terrified and that's very clear with the contraptions that they were coming up with. Movie theaters were practically empty, as were taverns, bowling alleys, and most places intended for entertainment after sundown, partly due to a curfew enforced on teenagers by law enforcement, and partly because people were just simply too afraid to be out and about after dark. At first, liquor stores and bars were criticized for not taking the attack seriously and staying open. Collectively, they decided to close at 9.30 at night and warn the general public that anyone who was entering their establishments and drinking just to get drunk and then wandering the streets of the area was complicating the efforts made by law enforcement and even putting themselves in harm's way, risking being shot by either law enforcement or a citizen on edge from recent events. Stores in the area were literally selling out of guns and ammunition, and neighbors were reporting each other as suspects and outlandish accusations did nothing to help the investigation. In fact, over 1,300 suspects were interviewed by both the FBI and Texas State Rangers. The list of suspects worth looking into, though, remained close to none. The FBI and Texas State Rangers got involved when this proved to be just too much for Sheriff Presley and his officers to handle. They weren't prepared or equipped to deal with terror like this. And Manuel Gonzalez, a famous Texas State Ranger, otherwise known as the Lone Wolf, arrived with the state officers and boasted that with his 26 years of experience, he would either capture or kill the Phantom before he left Texarkana. One of his first moves was to put out public notice, including information about where the bodies were found and information on Booker's missing saxophone. You kind of have to wonder if this made it more difficult to pinpoint any one individual when now the general public seemed to know a lot of what the police knew. Again, with over 1,300 suspects interviewed and countless arrests made, you'd think they would have had more information, but it seemed like the closest to a lead that they could get was a tip from a music store clerk in Corpus Christi, Texas, over 400 miles away. The clerk got a hold of law enforcement when a suspicious acting gentleman tried to sell a saxophone just like Booker's to the store. And these music stores also had serial numbers of, a, they had the serial number that, um, that was Betty Jo's saxophone serial number for her saxophone just in case people came in trying to sell it. So the ranger sent someone out there to look into it and turn, it turned out to be another dead end. Law enforcement and locals were trying to lure the phantom killer into a trap, setting up fake scenes on Lover's Lane and popular spots for such activities among young people. Nothing seemed to be working, though, and just a few weeks later on May 3rd, the phantom struck again. This time, though, he struck at a farmhouse just outside of Texarkana. Late at night on the 3rd of May, Katie Stark went upstairs to settle in for bed thinking that her husband Virgil would be up right behind her after he finished listening to the news about none other than the phantom killer. As she settled into bed, though, she heard what she thought was a drinking glass breaking, but as it would turn out, it was the glass window of their home being shot through. Katie Stark came downstairs to help Virgil clean up what she thought was broken glass again, 
unable to ever anticipate what would happen next. Virgil was dead in his chair, bleeding profusely from his head. Horrified, Katie turned to run to her telephone to call for help when she was shot twice in the face. Despite severe facial injuries, she maintained enough awareness to drop to the floor to avoid being shot again as the shooter was still outside with the intent to get to their bedroom to look for their firearm. Before she could manage that, though, it became very clear that whoever had shot her husband was now at her back door trying to break it down to get to her. She fled out the front door, barefoot, shot twice, and bleeding profusely and ran to the neighbor's. Now, when I say she ran to the neighbors, she wasn't a stone's throw away. She had a good distance to run before she could get there. And when she got there, the first house she stopped at, no one answered. So she had to run again to the next house to get help. Officers responded quickly and in great numbers because they were already on high alert. But for the first time in this string of slayings, they properly secured the scene inside the home but they failed to do so on the outside. The number of officers present trampling all over the evidence made it not only impossible for any person to track the killer, but scent dogs were then unable to pick up on any one specific scent, making their search seemingly senseless and impossible. They were able, though, to identify the mark of a size 10 shoe and took a black and red flashlight into evidence that was thought to have belonged to the killer and found where he would have been standing but nothing more. Something I only found mentioned in the FBI files, but not in any other sources, was that Virgil Stark was not just a farmer, but actually a deputy sheriff as well. And again, I only found that in the FBI files and not anywhere else, but I wonder if that had something to do with him being attacked and his wife being attacked while everyone else was found um, while participating in after-dark activities on what would have been deemed lover's lanes. Their home wasn't wrapped either, like previous victims had been. But again, Katie Stark seemed to have surprised the attacker when she escaped, and I imagine he just wanted to get the hell out of there. And as days went by and panic remained at an all-time high, no promising leads came in and no good suspects were found. It felt like the Texas Rangers, the FBI, and local law enforcement were stuck, and the citizens of Texarkana and surrounding areas were growing more and more frustrated and more scared until one ranger made an interesting connection. Happening in congruence with the string of murders was a string of car thefts, and then a call came in from an Arkansas farmer and landlord, Jim Mays. Jim called to report that his tenant had not paid rent, nor had he been seen for a few weeks. The license plate the landlord gave law enforcement for the vehicle belonging to his tenant, Ewell Swinney, matched a car that was stolen the evening that Griffin and Moore had been murdered. Now, what's interesting here, too, is the landlord wasn't calling to report the stolen vehicle. He was calling to report his tenant, Yule Swinney, because you could be arrested for not paying rent and you could be jailed for it. And that's essentially what he was doing. So Peggy Swinney, Yule's new wife, literally they had been married for hours, was arrested on June 28th after being caught with the vehicle that she and Yule had stolen together on the evening of the Griffin Moore double homicide. However, Yule was nowhere to be found. Mrs. Swinney told police officers that she had actually been present for one of the murders and later led investigators incredibly close to where Martin's vehicle had been discovered. Police officers even verified that the print of a woman's high heel shoe had been found on the scene in the mud, 
but truthfully, couldn't it have been Betty Jo Booker's heel print? I pored over the FBI files that were released on the internet a few years ago, but the type of shoe Booker had been wearing was not something I found. Swinney's wife went on to tell investigators information about the murders that they seemed to not even know. So Yule Swinney was arrested just about two weeks after his wife had been taken into custody. And upon being arrested, he asked officers if he would be getting the electric chair, which they found strange as at the time they were arresting him just for a string of car thefts, for which he was a repeat offender. Yule ended up being sentenced to practically life in prison, again for being a repeat offender, but not for murder. While his behavior was strange in questioning about the electric chair and if they knew more, there wasn't enough evidence to take him to court for the Texarkana murders, and his wife Peggy couldn't be compelled to testify against him and eventually took back her confession as well. Despite trying as hard as they could, investigator, investigators couldn't make her confession fit the timeline or the evidence in a way that would stand up in court. One thing that couldn't be explained away by officials, though, was the khaki shirt that was found in Swinney's room. It was like a work shirt with a laundry mark spelling Stark on it. And in the front pocket was slag that matched samples from Stark's wedding um, welding shop. Slag is leftover residue from melting down metals, for those of you who also have no clue. Other than that, though, his prints couldn't even be confirmed as being identical to the partial prints found at various scenes. Though, if we recall, those prints weren't really preserved very well, and a lot of evidence was mishandled or ignored by the police. Many, in fact, the majority of people at the time, including Peggy's family, believed that Swinney was guilty of the murders. However, there were a few other suspects that were taken a, a bit more seriously than the other 1,300-plus people who were given who names were given to the authorities. One of them, and seemingly the runner-up, so to speak, in this case, was Henry Booker Duty Tennyson. H.B. Tennyson was an 18-year-old university freshman who took his own life on November 4th of 1948, roughly two years after the murders. When he took his own life, he left instructions for investigators that led them to a suicide note where he confessed to having killed and attempted to kill the victims of the Texarkana Phantom Slayer. The only connection he seemed to have to any of the victims, though, was having played trombone with Betty Jo in high school. A friend of his, James Freeman, even provided an alibi for him that had him as busy on the evening that had him as busy on the evening of the Starks murder. However, it's also been speculated that the Starks murder wasn't even the same attacker as the other three. As a different weapon was used, it was a twenty-two instead, and this couple was in their home, not parked in a lover's lane. Well, a number of other suspects were also interviewed and printed. Most appeared to be looking for their 15 minutes of fame or just simply a little bit crazy with fear. A hitchhiker carjacked and robbed a man on May 7th and claimed to have killed five people in Texarkana and even named Booker and Martin. But again, to be fair, everyone in surrounding cities knew what was going on in Texarkana. Even nationwide, the papers were covering the slayings. The police were never even slightly convinced that it could have been this hitchhiker because the police, excuse me, the police were never even slightly convinced that it could have been him as the Phantom Slayer made it a point to conceal his identity while the hitchhiker was bragging about it. That just didn't add up. So I'll tell you something. I personally don't believe that it was any of these people, any of these suspects who were taken seriously, nor was it anyone that they seriously interviewed at all ever. 
I believe it was someone who was in town for a few months, and when it got too heated, he left. I'd be willing to bet that he had ties to the military and didn't necessarily have a home to call his own, but kind of wandered around. Like The word vagrant keeps popping into my head. But I do believe he was a veteran and that he wasn't possibly really all there anymore after the war. Further, I also believe that Peggy was simply spewing bullshit for attention and that her family would have been easily convinced that it was their daughter's husband because he likely wouldn't have been too well liked by her family. Regardless, you all should check out the FBI files on this case. They're pretty lengthy, but there's some really interesting pieces of information that just don't make it to mainstream stories about this case. And if you check it out on YouTube, if you search Yule Swinney or the Texarkana Phantom Slayings, you'll actually find a descendant of, um, not a direct descendant because Judy didn't have any kids, but of Judy Tennyson, um, I believe it would have been his nephew, talking about the killings and how he doesn't think that Sweeney did it, not that he believes that his, um, who would have been uncle or great uncle Tennyson did it, but that there are others out there who were more likely suspects. So who do you think did it? I would love to hear what some of you believe. And just one more ask of all of you before I go, if you haven't left a review on Apple iTunes, please go hit some stars and share some kind words to help get the word out about the show. I can't promise next week, but I can promise that I'll be back soon with more of Murder and Mediumship. I hope y'all are enjoying your summer if you're listening to this when it's released. And if not, I hope you're enjoying whatever time of year that it is. This is Catherine Galvin, and thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.